it's a form of lying. It's a form of deception. It's the best kind of lying because it's the kind of lying where the person that you're lying to not only knows that you're lying but gives you their consent and in fact asks you to lie to them. But as with all kinds of lying, you know, the more you can buttress your lie with a seeming evidence, with you know, apparent confirmation in so-called facts and so on, the better you'll put it over. And so a lot of it has to do with just trying to persuade uh, the reader that this really happened, that this is really happening or has really happened. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we will be talking with Michael Shabon, the best-selling author of the new novel, Moonglow. We'll also be hearing new work from debut novelist Britt Bennett and poet Devorah Major. And we'll hear a little Shakespeare from the streets of New York City. And so much more. So stick around. November-December issue is here. It's our annual independent publishing issue. It is, and we have an in-depth interview with Rob Spillman, the editor of Tin House, which is really great. We've also got an essay from Stephen Corey, who's the longtime editor of the Georgia Review, who makes a case against slush. He does not like that term, nope. slush pile. He hates it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is actually calling for something of an abolition mm-hmm. of the term slush. Yeah, uh, because it's really no way to refer to unsolicited submissions. No, and, you know, slush is gross. Right, and you can't pile it. You can't. No, so no no slush piles. No slush piles. And Laura Maylene Walter weighs in on submission fees. Hint, she does not like them. No, she doesn't. You know, you may not be able to pile up slush, but you sure can pile up submission fees. Yes, you can. Um, what else we got? Uh, we have Five Over 50, uh, which is our feature on uh, five authors over the age of 50 who published their debut books this past year. Yes. You know, it's award season, and a lot of recognition is given to young authors. There are awards, there are grant programs. You know, you're constantly hearing about the next exciting books by authors under a certain age. Mm-hmm. So we decided to find five authors who don't exactly fit that mold, uh, but are just as worthy of recognition. Uh, so we have uh, Desiree Cooper, Paul Vidic, Sonny Morris, Paula Wyman, and Paul Hertnecki. And so we asked them to uh, to write a bit about uh, publishing their books and what that was like for them. And we have excerpts of all five of those books online, so be sure to check that out. Michael Shabon's on our cover. He is. It's very exciting. His new novel, Moonglow, is out in November from Harper. Um, And like most of Michael Chabon's books, it is huge, it's sweeping, it covers many characters and many plot lines, Uh, it has elements of mystery and adventure, Um, it's an awesome book. But it also plays with form, so it's a novel, but it's told kind of in the form of a memoir, a deathbed confession, wherein the narrator is listening to his grandfather sort of reveal his life story. And it's about World War II. It's about the grandfather's wife, who is a Holocaust survivor. It's about space exploration. It's about a lot of things. It's really great. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I've always been really fascinated by 
uh, novelists who are able to sort of create these incredibly complex fictional worlds uh, populated by these, you know, deep uh, lives of, of characters. So I, I called Michael at his home in Berkeley, and we talked a little bit about his writing process. Uh, and we also talked about his writing space, mm-hmm. uh, because on the table of contents, we have this photograph uh, taken by Kevin Nance of Michael uh, in his writing chair, uh, which is really something. Um, I refer to it as uh, sort of command central because it looks like he's about to blast off in space. <laughs> so we, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, we talked about the new novel, and we're going to listen to some of that now. This call is now being recorded. Michael Shabon, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. You bet. So Moon Glow is your new novel, and it'll be published by Harper in November, and it is really great. You know, it's this this sweeping narrative that covers this great swath of American history from South Philadelphia in the 1930s to World War II to the heyday of the space program to a Florida retirement village in the waning years of the 20th century. Um, it's really impressive in its scope and its vivid attention to detail. Uh, which is something that readers have really come to expect uh, and obviously love about your novels. Um, I'm wondering if you could, you know, talk a bit about your process when writing these novels, uh, you know, when amassing what seems like this sort of entire world of information and detail and infusing it into a narrative that readers really care about. You know, um, I'm kind of fascinated by that and I'm sort of wondering what your process is. Well, you know, I think there's a couple of different aspects to it. Um, one is that, without question, one of the motivating factors for me in writing a particular book and deciding to write a particular book, you know, maybe uh, sometimes I'm often sort of considering one or two or three, even sometimes different possibilities of what I might want to do next. Uh, one of the things that usually tips me in one way or another is the question of which book seems like it's going to be the most fun to research. For me, research is, is a form of immersion in the book and in the, in, the, in the world of the book. It's really, I mean, what I determine just for myself as the world, when I say the world of the book, it's maybe something a little bit like the idea of a milieu. It's a combination of physical setting, physical location, period. Uh, then I, the question of sort of the kinds of um, people who are likely to be found in that place at that time, whether it's, mm-hmm. and when I say that period, it, the period could well be the present or close to the present, like in my book, Telegraph Avenue. Um, in exploring that, w- the world of the book, I need to do research. And again, like setting a book here where I actually lived in the Bay Area in my previous novel, um, in the East Bay and in more or less the present day, even so there was research that had to be done that I knew kind of going into it. And then there's all these things you sort of realize along the way that you need to know more about. Um, right. So I can't always know for sure when I'm starting, before I start, which one's going to be the most fun or the most interesting or one that's going to give me an excuse to really dig down deep into something that I'm either already interested in or something that I've always been curious about and don't know as much as I would like to about. Um, but there's also that kind of like exciting, those exciting moments along the way where you're like, oh, I really need to find out more about, I don't know, like, German motorcycle of (laughs) World War II or whatever. And um, so that's part of it. But another part of it is simply, especially, I mean, after really after my first book, my first novel, Mysteries of Pittsburgh, or maybe clearly after Wonder Boys, my second book, I I really did move away from um, writing novels that are clearly autobiographical or modeled Mm -hmm. very strongly or, or derived 
you know, to one degree or another from actual personal experience of mine. And uh, the farther away I get from that and the more that I am writing about characters whose lives are very different from my own, whose paths, whose histories are very different from my own, um, the more research I have to do because I need to persuade the reader that they are real people. Um, so it's really, it is, it's a form of lying. It's a form of deception. It's the best kind of lying because it's the kind of lying where the person that you're lying to knows, not only knows that you're lying, but gives you their consent and in fact asks you to lie to them, tell me a story. <laughs> right. Um, right. But as with all kinds of lying, you know, the more you can buttress your lie with um, a seeming evidence with, with, you know, apparent confirmation in so-called facts and so on, um, the better you'll put it over. And so a lot of it has to do with just trying to persuade the reader that this really happened, that this is really happening or has really happened. Um, right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, that, and that's that's the reason we, we open up a novel in the first place, right? That's to, I mean, that's uh, why I, at least one of the reasons, and the other one is language. Um, it's a language, the style of a book is is to me part of the book's milieu it's part of its world as well and there's i basically uh feel like i have to invent a different style um mm -hmm. even if it's uh, not a strong difference from one book to another but others of my books i think differ very much in their literary style and to me that's a part of the world of the book as well and it's a, definitely one of the big pleasures for me as a reader and right, a right. writer too well, I think that that's the that's the really impressive thing is that these are these are such you know um, I I certainly see them as very ambitious novels you know they have these these worlds and you say you know that you you're creating but you've also done the research to sort of inform them but you know they also have these these narratives that we really care about and I was just I'm wondering you know do you use an outline or how do you this might be kind of a silly question but like how do you keep track of of all of the different lines in a in a novel like this, you know, I I, I wish I did outline. Um, when I do outline, <laughs> it often saves me a lot of time. Um, but I find that particularly in the beginning stages of a book, and by that I mean like really the first year of working on a book, you know, if I if I outline two, I will often I'll outline some. So for example, with this latest book, Moonglow, um, I started working on it with really no idea where it was coming from or where it was going to be going. And um, it was sort of a mysterious gift in a way that appeared one day when I started to write. But within about three or four days after starting, I sat down to work and suddenly it just, you know, I thought I was going to be adding some more sentences. And instead, I just had this complete sense of like, oh, he's going to do this and the main character is going to do that and he's going to go here and he's going to go there. And I, I just took down these notes that kind of gave me the general regions of the story and what they were going to be. And again, I really mm -hmm. am not totally sure how I knew all that either, where that was coming from. <laughs> but, um, but after that, that was as much as an outline as I ever mm -hmm. had. And that's pretty typical. And what I find is the more I know about something ahead of time, the better detail I know it in ahead of time, the less interested I am in writing it. Because mm, for me, I think part of the process is finding out what my book is about. And to be honest, almost every, with almost every book, certainly the last several, I, I haven't actually realized what I was writing about until the last about six months of 
work out about wow. out of a three to five year period. Um, usually mm-hmm. it's right at the end I suddenly go, oh, I see. <laughs> and then right. we you know the beautiful thing if it's and it's a good sign when this happens and a bad sign when it doesn't. And I'll go back and I'll look and I'll say, well, that's why this has been here all this time. Right. I had this whole episode in here and I didn't know why and it kind of wasn't really doing anything. And now I get it. Now I see what it was for, even though I didn't know it until just now. But um, it can also be somewhat calamitous to suddenly discover what your book's really about after four years of work and you realize like, oh, this whole 300 page uh, middle section of this book no longer really fits. I have to cut it. That can be liberating too. Does that happen often to you? I mean, uh, oh my God, all the time. I've had just you know what seemed at the time felt at the time like catastrophic realizations that meant that meant to I mean in the case of the Yiddish Police Union I threw out a 600 page draft oh and started goodness. over again um, with just about probably keeping about 30 pages of what I had done and it felt horrible it's certainly in prospect it felt horrible as soon as I did it I was so relieved and oh, you know it became clear fairly quickly that it was the right thing to have done, although of course I had so much more work left to do. Did you did you come to that realization on your own, or did did you have input from others that sort of? I know usually usually that kind of thing. <laughs> I'd be I'd actually almost be suspicious of having that kind of um, realization or apparent realization by myself, sort of <laughs> absent um, anyone else's input. If I, and when I have feelings like that, that's more like despair or pessimism or defeatism and I'm suspicious of that sense but like based on when I pass it out to certain readers whether it's my wife or my editor in the case of Yiddish Policeman's Union it was an editor um, having read the manuscript and and Mm -hmm. saying nothing remotely resembling you know toss it all out and start over all she said was this thing's not working for me I need more of this I'd like to see more of that and I don't Mm -hmm. understand why this leads to that and what is really this what's this part about and you know and just kind of coming to grips with it I then I had the realization like oh crap (laughs) I knew knew this all along or or she's totally right or and then uh, ideally after that passes then you start to think well what could I do how could I fix this So one of the photographs that Kevin Nance took of you shows you at your writing desk. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's quite a setup. And I'm wondering if you could sort of describe and kind of explain the physical space where you write. Sure. Well, I write in an Ames chair and I write in that sort of, you know, legs up, tilted a slightly backward position with a, with a keyboard on a tray in my lap and then the, and my laptop itself um, on a, a kind of swing arm table because... I was having pretty serious um, wrist pain problems, and um, one of the diagnoses from a person I brought in to help me fix this problem, which was mm-hmm. terrifying, um, someone who makes their living at the keyboard, 
um, was um, that I needed to not be sitting in a conventional desk chair at a conventional desk, and I needed to be at a certain like eye level with the screen. And and I realized, and and she basically first she put me in a chair that kind of tilted like a desk chair that tilted a certain way. But I realized at some <laughs> point, I think I just tried working in the names chair at some point, and I thought, oh my god, this is actually perfect. So um, <laughs> you look like you're at uh, you know Command Central. There, you're going to take off. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times people ask me, you know, don't you fall asleep? Because I work at night. <laughs> and the answer is, yeah, sometimes I do, actually. And I've learned, because I really do work through the night, I used to kind of fight that or think, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? Is my work boring me? Or is it going to bore the reader? Um, but I realized if I just let myself nap for a little while, one thirty mm-hmm. in the morning or something, I'll wake up at 2 a.m. and then I can work for three more hours. So That's great. Naps are underrated, for sure. Yes, even <laughs> middle-of-the-night naps. Now, is that the only place you write? Um, or you, you just have to kind of confine yourself to that location? or are you? Uh, no, I can work anywhere. I mean, apart from the, the ergonomics of it, I can... I'm, I like I love working on airplanes, for example. Okay. I love it. I put headphones on, listen to some Steve Reich, and um, I vanish into the headphones, the music, and what I'm what I'm looking at on the screen. Excellent. Well, your new novel, Moon Glow, will be out uh, in November from Harper. And uh, Michael, I just really want to thank you for taking the time to to talk. And uh, it's a really great novel, and I wish you the best of luck. Ah, thanks a lot, Kevin. It's been my pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Kevin, when was the last time you read a Shakespearean sonnet? <laughs> well, it's been a while. Me too. But that reminds me, you know, I had a moment in high school uh, in English class where we had to memorize a sonnet, a Shakespearean sonnet, mm-hmm. and we had to get up in front of the class and recite it. Oh, God. Yeah. And um, I thought that it would be a good idea and that it would sort of help me remember this sonnet to basically recite it to... <laughs> a girl in the class that you liked. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. So I got up in front of class and I and I I, start, I started reciting it to this girl, and it was going fine. You were on. I was on it. But then this look of sort of abject horror kind of came over this girl's face when she realized that I was just staring at her <laughs> reciting this this sonnet, this love poem. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I got all flustered and I had to sort of stare out the window uh, to finish it. And I kind of you know tripped all over myself. Uh, so yeah, that was not um, not cool. I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. say you know it was not a, a sort of John Cusack uh, mm. moment. Um, no boombox over the forehead. No, no, it was just staring at a girl yeah. reciting a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, Shakespeare is not uh, not uh, not the coolest thing for most high schoolers. Unfortunately, but it but but it can be. It can be. Yeah, and that's where the New York Shakespeare Exchange comes in. That's right, and the um, the Shakespeare Sonnet Project. Yes. Uh, which we have an article about in our News and Trends section. Mm -hmm. And this is a project where they're finding filmmakers uh, and pairing them up with actors, and they are performing 
uh, sonnets, Shakespearean sonnets, in different locations all around New York City. Yeah, and the organization's mission is to try to, you know, make Shakespeare accessible and cool again. So they're trying to reach a, a wide audience. They're mm-hmm. kind of trying to bring it to classrooms. Um, and they're, the goal is to make these short films for all 154 Shakespearean sonnets. Right. And some of them are sort of quirky. Some of them are really dramatic. Uh, but they're really interesting. Yeah, um, they are very cool, actually. So we're going to listen to one now. Um, it's Sonnet 16, uh, and the actor is Devin Glover, and the director is Robert Manning Jr., and uh, Devin performed Sonnet 16 at the Bowery Graffiti Wall in Manhattan. Sixteen. Almost had it. Uh, yeah. But wherefore do not you a mighty away make war upon this bloody tyrant time and fortify yourself in your decay with means more blessed than my barren rhyme? Now stand you on the top of happy hours and many maiden gardens yet unset. With virtuous wish would bear your living flowers much like a vineyard painted counterfeit. So should the lines of life that life repair, which this time's pencil or my pupil's pen, neither in inward worth or outward fear, can make you live yourself in eyes of men. To give away yourself keeps yourself still, and you must live drawn by your own sweet skill. By your own sweet skill. By your own sweet skill. One of this issue's page one authors is Britt Bennett, whose debut novel, The Mothers, is just out from Riverhead. Britt Bennett is 25. This is her first novel. It's getting a tremendous amount of coverage. She was just named a recipient of the National Book Foundation's 535. Um, and it's a really exciting book. So we asked Britt to read a section of it for us, and we are going to hear a little bit of that right now. In the darkness of the club, you could be alone with your grief. Her father had flung himself into upper room. He went to both services on Sunday mornings, to Wednesday night Bible study, to Thursday night choir practice, although he did not sing, although practices were closed, but nobody had the heart to turn him away. Her father propped his sadness on a pew, but she put her sad in places no one could see. The bartender shrugged at her fake ID and mixed her a drink and she sat in dark corners, sipping rum and Cokes, and watching women with beat bodies spin on stage. Never the skinny young girls. The club saved them for weekends or nights. Just older women thinking about grocery lists and childcare, their bodies stretched and pitted from age. Her mother would have been horrified at the thought, her in a strip club in the light of day, but Nadia stayed, sipping the watery drinks slowly. Her third time in the club, an old black man pulled up a chair beside her. He wore a red plaid shirt under suspenders, gray tufts peeking out from under his Pacific Coast bait and tackle cap. What you drinking, he asked. What are you drinking, she said. He laughed. Nah, this a grown man drink, not for a little thing like you. I'll get you something sweet. You like that, honey? You look like you got a sweet tooth. He smiled and slid a hand onto her thigh. His fingernails curled dark and long against her jeans. 
Before she could move, a black woman in her 40s wearing a glittery magenta bra and thong appeared at the table. Light brown streaked across her stomach like tiger stripes. You leave her be, Lester, the woman said. Then to Nadia, come on, I'll freshen you up. Aw, Cece, I was just talking to her, the old man said. Please, Cece said, that child ain't even as old as your watch. She led Nadia back to the bar and tossed what was left of her drink down the drain. Then she slipped into a white coat and beckoned for Nadia to follow her outside. Against the slate gray sky, the flat outline of the hanky-panky seemed even more depressing. Further along the building, two white girls were smoking, and they each threw up a hand when Cece and Nadia stepped outside. Cece returned the lazy greeting and lit a cigarette. You got a nice face, Cece said. Those your real eyes? You mixed? No, she said. I mean, they're my eyes, but I'm not mixed. Look mixed to me. Cece blew a sideways stream of smoke. You a runaway? Oh, don't look at me like that. I won't report you. I see you girls come through here all the time, looking to make a little money. Ain't legal, but Bernie don't mind. Bernie will give you a little stage time, see what you can do. Don't expect no warm welcome, though. Hard enough fighting those blonde bitches for tips. Wait till the girls see your light bright ass. I don't want to dance, Nadia said. Well, I don't know what you're looking for, but you ain't going to find it here. Cece leaned in closer. You know you got see-through eyes? Feels like I can see right through them. Nothing but sad on the other side. She dug into her pocket and pulled out a handful of crumpled ones. This ain't no place for you. Go on down to Fat Charlie's and get you something to eat. Go on. Nadia hesitated, but Cece dropped the bills into Nadia's palm and curled her fingers into a fist. Maybe she could do this, pretend she was a runaway. Or maybe, in a way, she was. Her father never asked where she'd been. She returned home at night and found him in his recliner, watching television in a darkened living room. He always looked surprised when she unlocked the front door, like he hadn't even noticed that she'd been gone. Page one author for this issue is Devorah Major, whose new book, And Then We Became, is out in November. Um, She's the former poet laureate of San Francisco. She is the author of a number of books of poetry, as well as uh, short stories, essays, young adult titles. And so we asked her to read a few poems from her new collection, and we are going to hear from her right now. This is Devorah Major reading from And Then We Became. From the section, and then we became spirit. Cosmology meditation, number one. We are the memory of that place without measure, that filled all space that never was and ever will be. That place existing as the perfect note, yet making no sound, 
holding all colors inside a light that was nothing but darkness. We are the memory of a breath that could not be but was, a breath that swelled to bubble that burst and then collapsed. We are the memory gestated in days that lasted eons as the universe womb birthed heat, light, rock, ice, mineral, song, us. We are the impossible made flesh, creating infinite possibilities of hope or endless chasms of despair inside the prayers which we have become. From the section, and then we became whole on issues of alien, immigration, and cosmology. One. Truth be told, we are all aliens now, traveling in outer space on our rocky blue sea planet. Only a few of us stayed nestled in the belly of our ancestors' birthday, on the lips of our mother's womb. All of the rest of us have traveled to here where our heads now sleep, where our children grow and flourish or wither and perish, but once we were all natives. Long before the ones whose names we have forgotten began their trek, we were all natives. Long before the ones who stayed stopped telling stories of we who had left. Eons ago, we had no questions about who was our kin. Everyone was related. Then we began to travel, turned each other into opposites, becoming and creating aliens. Two. We traversed this planet near the edge of our dark, milky galaxy, rotating steadily, circling one sun, ghosted by one moon, in concert with no less than eight planets. We revolve with and without each other, and sometimes meteors who whistle through stardust, creating sandstorms, lake beds, mineral deposits, and fossilized amoeba. And as we move past comets flying past us, we see stars fall from the sky and marvel at being in the middle of all these galactic wonders. Thus we travel, with and as aliens, in outer space on this planet where we live. And everywhere we stay, we are surrounded by other voyagers, like and unlike us. I know, I have always been an outsider, amidst immigrants, beside aliens, next to strangers, just like you. Devorah Major, her book, And Then We Became, is published by City Lights in San Francisco. Speaking of City Lights and San Francisco, (laughs) we have an event coming up. We do. We have a huge (laughs) event coming up. Our first two-day Poets and Runners Live, January 14th and 15th at the San Francisco Art Institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a huge lineup. We have Jonathan Franzen. We have Juan Felipe Pereira, Jane Hirschfield, Kay Ryan, Susan Orlean, Benjamin Percy, Soma Sharif. Tons of people. It's going to be great. And we'll be kicking it off with a little gathering at City Lights Books on Friday night, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, no less. So tickets are on sale now. Definitely want to check that out. Uh, One of the things we have Saturday night, Joyce Lee, who is a two-time Oakland Grand Slam champion, is going to be leading our audience in an exquisite corpse. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that we started uh, in Austin this past January. Um, Kirk Lynn and Carrie Fountain led our audience in an exquisite corpse, and uh, they started things off with um, Carrie read a poem, and Kirk uh, led us in a prayer for inspiration. Inspiration. <laughs> this is a poem called Prayer, Stop It. When I said I wanted to work harder than everyone, I didn't mean work harder. I didn't mean that I wanted to answer more emails and forget to eat lunch. I meant sweat. And I didn't mean sweat, of course, but light. I guess I meant I wanted to shine brighter than everyone. And that's where I've gone wrong again and again. With or without God, this moment continues to end and end, with or without virtue. In the park yesterday, sitting on the lawn with the baby, I watched a boy and his younger sister walk to the pool. He was carrying a bag with their towels. She was wearing green floaties pushed very high up on her arms. Once they'd passed, the boy turned to the girl and yelled, stop it, into her round face. And the girl smiled hugely at having worn him down and then assured him that she would stop. And though I'd been watching them and continued to watch them, I could not perceive what it was she'd stopped doing. Thank you. Kirk, you're going to do something now, aren't you? Aren't you always going to do something? Um, so I once heard a history of theater described in this way, that the, the Greeks, when they made theater, they made theater that was to speak to the gods, and that the Elizabethans and Shakespeare, especially the groundlings, made theater that was to speak to man, that was to speak to other humans, um, to the contemporary culture, and that uh, Beckett, when he made theater that was so sort of internal and the monologue and a lot of tape recorders and was to speak to the self. And I think in some ways the prayer, I, I make prayers as public performance. In some ways I think to make theater that addresses all those things and also to have a kind of little theater I can put in my pocket and just take wherever I go. I was also raised uh, Southern Baptist and I miss Uh, While I don't miss so much of the Southern Baptist Convention and their politics, uh, I miss some of the performance and some of the um, connection that I had. The spiritual longing that is there is still in my life. But I made a little prayer today to do with you guys uh, to get us in the mood for our exquisite corpse. So if you'll repeat after me, I'll say a line and then you say it after me, if you don't mind. This is called Prayer for Inspiration. I'm sorry. sorry. Inspiration. For sometimes being one of those people people. who takes more than they give, give. like at a potluck, potluck. when everybody has a casserole, casserole. and I bring plastic forks. (laughs) To make up for it, this week I promise to feed the birds. Or to wink at a stranger. Or to stick my tongue out at children. This week, I promise to call a strange friend. Or to tell someone who totally doesn't expect it 
Someone who's mad at me. Someone who hates me. That I love him. Or her. Or to offer to say grace. And to make it a good grace. Even when I have no business saying grace. Just to hear the people who inspire me say, say, Amen. Amen. I'm inspired. Are you inspired? I'm totally inspired, which is a good thing. You want to know why? Why? Because we're going to be working on our inspiration issue. Yes, January, February. Winter is coming. I can't believe it. You know what winter brings? What's that? Slush. Slush. You know, you can walk through slush. But you can't read it. No slush piles. No. But we are going to be reading some unsolicited submissions for our inspiration issue. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about that issue. Which will include our 12th annual debut Poets Roundup. And so much more. So tune in next time. To Ampersand. The Poets and Runners podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falavino, with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, Transient, Catherine Calder, and Little Glass Men. Find out more about Poets and Writers Live and get tickets to our next event in San Francisco at pw.org forward slash live. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including excerpts from 5 Over 50, the extended interview with Rob Spillman of Tin House, and a video from the Shakespeare Sonnet Project at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Thank you.